Hello and welcome back to Footprints. It's August and you're listening to the latest episode with me, Pommy Harmer. As usual, Footprints is designed to tempt you out and about to take part in Bathscape's Walking Festival, which is coming up very soon in September. This month I'll be finding out the latest plans from Lucy and also talking to her about keeping safe on a walk. Later in the episode we'll be venturing into Sydney Gardens with artist Richard White who's been exploring some of Bath's hidden uncomfortable histories. But first we decided we wanted to celebrate. No, not Freedom Day but in fact the 50th anniversary of the Cotswolds Way. In the July episode, Lucy and I talked about long-distance walking, and so what better excuse than to meet up with and find out more from Margaret Reed, who's in charge of the Cotswold Way of Voluntary Wardens, and Nicole Dorr, who is the Trails and Access Officer. First, you'll hear from Margaret talking about what the wardens get up to. The wardens look after the Cotswolds Way and indeed look after the Cotswolds. There's about 400 wardens and a small group of them are designated as Cotswolds Way wardens. And they're the ones that all have a small section of the Cotswolds Way and they look after the paths. They look after the signage. They would clear the scrub when it's like it is at the moment. It's getting very overgrown and they will report back problems and the work parties would come and sort out the problem. The Cotswolds Way is very heavily used, as you know, as a lot of people walk along it. And so, you know, the gates need attention sometimes, you know, that the styles, if they still exist, become loose and so on. And so the wardens just keep an eye on every inch of the way of the Cotswolds Way. That is fantastic work that you do. And thank you for that, because I've... I've walked it and uh, it's incredibly well signed. You you could quite easily do it without a book, I think. But tell me about the history of the Cotswold Way, because it's just celebrated its 50th birthday. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It uh, started in about 1970. Two ramblers from the South Gloucestershire Ramblers started it up. And the, the two names are Tony Drake and Cyril Trenfield. The way was formally launched in May 1970. So last year it had its 50th anniversary, but of course we couldn't celebrate it because of lockdown. So we're celebrating it this year in September, as you know. And in 2007, the Cotswolds Way became a national trail. That's a more senior uh, designation, if you like, than just saying it's a long distance walk. The government designates it as such. It's funded by DEFRA. I think there's 16 of them in England and Wales, and they all have special features. So ours, obviously, is it's a Cotswold limestone scarp that the Cotswolds Way runs along. And because it's a national trail, it has to adhere to a certain set of standards. And that's where the wardens come in. So all the national trails have to have their paths looked after to a very high standard. The signage, which you mentioned, you know, very well signed, that's all part of it being a national trail. What do you love about walking? How can you encourage people to get out there and walk? This is a huge positive part of my life I would say you know if I wake up and I've got to walk that day I can metaphorically anyway spring out of bed 
So I'm very keen to encourage anyone to go out. There's lots of aspects of walking, which I think are so appealing. You know, we live in the Cotswolds, as you said, and it's just a lovely, lovely part of the countryside. And it changes with the season. So at the moment, we're, you know, we're walking out past fields with lovely hedgerows, with lovely flowers. But some of the fields, anyway, have got orchids in them at the moment, which are just good fun to see if you can spot them lurking in, in, in the grass. In other seasons, it's as interesting because you can go out in the autumn and you get the autumn colours and so on. There's always something to see. So that's my first answer. I think about walking, you also kind of leave your everyday life aside. And this is true if you go for any length of walk. It's think you get absorbed by the countryside. You kind of forget about all the things you're worrying about and you just sort of enjoy the moment I think you you do need food and drink I'm very keen on my food and I'm walking but so you do need to pack and think about all that when you go out for a walk but but really it is it's it's mentally good for you I think and you know there's a sort of spiritual attitude you know you can go out into into the Cotswolds quite easily and get away from everybody and you just look across these lovely vistas uh, and you think gosh you know this view has been here for centuries it's just brilliant and you sort of sit and or stand and just absorb the fact that you're in the countryside you're in nature. You mentioned food and drink and we have a little bit of a thing about this on our podcast we've we've mentioned it a few times tell us what your favourite picnic is. I'm at rather Spartan in the sense that as a shortcut, I don't make sandwiches. I take oat cakes. Um, and this actually started when I did long distance walking and we had to carry our own food. And you can't really carry sort of four days of rolls, brown rolls and butter and so on. So I just take oat cakes and my most favourite cheese that's in the fridge. <laughs> uh, and I take tomatoes, apple. And at the moment, I wouldn't take any chocolate because <laughs> it's melted in two minutes, but definitely something sweet for later on in the day. That's exactly what I take, oat cakes and cheese and tomatoes and maybe hummus sometimes. Because it's easy, isn't it? It's very quick. They pack well and they're quite filling and satisfying, yes. Yes. OK, I want to bring in Nicole, who's been waiting patiently, sat by a beautiful looking tree. I can see you there. Hi there. Nicole, tell us what you do. Yeah, so I have two parts of my job. The part that I haven't really started yet, which will be looking after the Cotswold Way. And then the bit that I'm working on mostly now is, is part of the Bathscape project, and particularly on formalising the circuit of Bath route, which is the one that the Julian House Walk follows. Oh, so does this mean you're going to make it so that people can walk it at any time and there'll be signage and things? Yeah, exactly. So the Waymark discs arrived yesterday. How exciting. So it will be Waymarked in both directions. So that's what I've been working on since I started in June. We'll also be working on creating a suite of shorter walks. Hopefully there'll be about 18 in total, but from a short, well-accessible walk that someone in a wheelchair or someone with a pushchair might be able to manage relatively flat relatively easy or maybe someone who just is looking to start exercising is recovering from an injury or illness right up to the other end of the extreme which is the circuit of bath and everything in between so during the walking festival um, lucy and i will be doing a bit of a consultation walk 
So asking people to come along, do a short walk with us, but then have a chat to us about what they like to see in a guided walk, as it were, in terms of things like, does it have to have a map? Does it, is it useful for it to be an OS map or a different kind of map? Do you want to know exactly how long it is in terms of meters or is a rough time estimate good? We, the thing we find about times is everyone walks at a different pace, so they're very yeah. difficult to judge. How important is it that toilets are available? How important is it that you can go to the go and get food on the route? Because we think we know the answers, but we probably have not thought of everything. And how much do you love walking, Nicole? Yeah, I mean, similarly to Margaret, I do love it. I I suppose to start with, I didn't appreciate it as much. You know, I was a child that was dragged out on Sunday walks. And then just as I've got older, come back to it where at first, it was something to do with friends, you know, something to do that gives you space to chat. And, you know, when you're walking side by side with someone through beautiful countryside, it's really easy to chat about things. And then as I, I've now got two small children, I just find I have to get out with them, <laughs> you know, for my sanity and for theirs. And we all have a lot more fun when we're just romping around outside. And you're very keen to promote walking for families. Tell me a little bit about that. It can sometimes feel a little bit daunting when you when you have young children in particular. A walk doesn't have to be a big, complicated thing. It can just be a stroll around the park, but instead of just beelining to the playground, going and exploring the park a little bit more. Yes. So tell us your favourite snack. Um, anything chocolate-based. Very nice. <laughs> Margaret, can you tell us about the Relay Walk, which I think is being organised along the Cotswold Way as part of the Bathscapes Walking Festival? The Relay starts in Bath on the 11th at the start of the Cotswold Way just outside Bath Abbey. And it's running through the next nine days till we reach the end, Chipping Camden. It's a joint effort between the Wardens, the Ramblers, John Lewis, Robert Welsh, and other walking groups might want to get involved. That's absolutely terrific if they do. And anyone should contact me if they want to come and, and join the walk, which would be copsfoldsheadwarden at gmail.com. And if anyone's interested in joining a leg, then to write to me, and then at least I can know that they're interested. And Margaret, um, how long are the legs? The legs are quite long. <laughs> so there will be 11 or 12 miles, usually. You put on other events for people during the year, is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of events people could join in on now that we're coming out of lockdown? What we do is we offer walks, guided walks, right across the Cotswolds and we're just starting back on sort of formal guided walks and they are advertised on the Cotswolds National Landscape website under guided walks. The voluntary wardens walks always have stopping points where we explain about bits or tell you about the history of a village or the name of something or uh, plants that you might have missed you know and some of our wardens are very expert on on plants and so on so so there's always interesting things to to learn about and to find out about on the guided walks on the website is a whole list of self-guided walks and these actually tend to be shorter walks so if you want to go out into the Cotswolds you know you can drive out you can get buses out and the self-guided walks are really a, a terrific resource, actually. 
Excellent. And before I go, I'd just like to ask you both for your top tip for walking. Margaret, what's your top tip? I suppose top tip is really thinking about the weather, the night or the day before, even two days before, and trying to think what the walk would be like with the weather. You know, so at the moment, okay, we don't need raincoats, but we do need lots and lots of water. You know, in the autumn, it might be quite a bright day, but it could get cold if you're going up a bit higher. Think about chucking in, you know, a, a fleece or something. It's just trying to anticipate what the walk would be like. Even, you know, three miles, it can change, the climate can change. So uh, just thinking ahead and always putting in that extra biscuit or that extra apple. I think I'd like to come for a walk with you, <laughs> Margaret. I think I'd be well fed as I went along. <laughs> but thank you for that. That's really important to think about how the weather might change and to anticipate different weathers from the one that even might be on the BBC weather app. Totally agree 100% with Margaret. And then something in addition to that, if you're new to walking, you don't have to start off on a hike. You know, just maybe explore your local area, kind of having the right attitude on the offset of, I'm just going to have an enjoyable walk. That's a really important and fantastic way to finish. Thank you so much, Nicole and Margaret, for joining us today on this podcast and talking about the wondrous work of the Cotswold Wave Wardens and all the work you do. Thank you very much indeed. That was Margaret Reed, Head Warden for the Cotswolds Natural Landscapes, and Nicole Dorr, the Trails and Access Officer. Lucy, how are you doing? Hello, very well. You? It's August, Lucy, and the Walking Festival is only a month away and the timetable's out. It is. It's very exciting. It is really exciting and I want to hear all about that. But first, tell us how your holiday went. You went walking, didn't you? I did. I went walking and, in fact, I went walking and I was inspired by our own podcasts and spent a bit of time in Derbyshire and did Kinder Scout and then went up to the Yorkshire Dales and stayed just outside Skipton and did a couple of really nice walks yeah in the dales which was lovely and just before the heat wave so very bearable oh excellent and so let's hear all about the walking festival i'm right in thinking it runs from the 11th to the 26th that's right of september of september yes good point okay so tell us what's planned a host of free guided walks some of them with a theme or a topic A lot of them around the city centre. So there's some on architecture. There's one on LGBTQ history of Bath. Quite a lot of social history, some really interesting walks about some of the hidden corners. The Workhouse Burial Ground in Wellsway, Southdown Estate, that sort of thing. And then we've got some really fantastic experts like Amy Frost from Bath Preservation Trust and Andrew Swift and Kirsten Elliott, who are all doing walks about their areas of expertise. So Beckford's Tower the hidden corners of Bath, looking at some of the architecture in great detail. We've got the archaeologist from the Sydney Gardens project. And then at the other extreme, the longer walks are just those good old city to countryside and vice versa, showing off the Bathscape in all its glory. So you could do seven, eight, nine miles in beautiful countryside with all of the views, all starting from somewhere really handy. So lots and lots of variety there. And if people go to the website, 
they can sign up now. There's also a death walk, is there not? There's a walk exploring the Victorian attitude to death. Yeah, up at um, Bath Abbey Cemetery. So I'm really looking forward to that one. And a bat walk. Many bat walks. Bat walks are really great. It's one of the things that families really enjoy because children from five upwards can really get involved with those. And September's a really good time to do them because, of course, it gets dark earlier. So we go out at dusk at about seven o'clock, a little chat about bats, and then use the bat detectors to listen to them. And Bath is a fantastic location for bats. A lot of the native bats are found here and we see them. So lots and lots for people to get involved in and all different lengths, I think, aren't they? From one which is about 500 metres and you get to post a postcard on that one. And I really want to do that one. To some which last all day. Yes. And the website has hopefully all of the information that you need. So it talks about the length, how long you're going to be out, what you need, things like the terrain. We don't grade them like some walking festivals do because the you know, whether something's easy or hard is, is kind of for you to decide. But on the website, we'll give you all of the information. So how long it is, where the meeting point is, who the walk leader is, everything you need to know is, is on there. The booking system is open, so people are starting to book on them. So have a look before they start booking up. And they're all risk assessed. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the walk leaders do a risk assessment when they're planning the route, just thinking about things like whether it's near water or whether it goes through livestock or anything like that. And then they'll tend to do a recce a few days beforehand to see if anything's changed. So if there's been a lot of heavy rain, for example, or crops at different times of year can be very different. And suddenly you find yourself walking through eight foot high maize fields, whereas when you did your risk assessment, it was it was just (laughs) it was just a muddy field. (laughs) So this month, Lucy, we're talking all about safety, are we not? So let's start with first aid. Do you take a first aid kit with you? Yes, I take a very basic first aid kit. And in that, I have got a tip kit as well. Things that you're most likely to have, blisters and sprains, isn't it really? Or maybe scratches, things like that. So so just things that can cope with those basic things. Yeah, and a tip kit because obviously a ticket in Lyme's disease is, is a bit of an issue. Ticks are widespread all over the country now, aren't they? And they burrow in so you need special tweezers that will get underneath them to get the whole of the tick out yep and follow the instructions about pulling or twisting or which you're supposed to do now you mentioned blisters oh do you remember in may we had the poor man who was walking the circuit of bath yes arriving back with terrible blisters that was a 20 mile walk so probably for most walks that we go on we're not going to get blisters but if you're out for the day You know, it's important to make sure your feet are comfortable. Let's just go through ways of managing feet again. For for me, it's all about having the right socks and making sure your footwear fits. Also, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes you walk thinking, yeah, I've got a bit of a stone in my shoe, I've got a bit of a rub in my sock and carry on. Always stop and remove it (laughs) as soon as you feel it. Don't let it rub. Make sure you've got in your first aid kit plasters and compete, which is... A special kind of plaster for blisters and just follow the instructions. They come in all sorts of sizes, so you can get ones that will really fit your little baby toe. Yeah, and I think it's important that it covers the whole blister, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, what else do you carry in your pack to make sure you're safe? It can be 
quite useful to have a whistle and it can be very useful to have a compass. So with the whistle, the recognised sign of distress is six short blasts on a whistle, isn't it? And um, that that can be heard from a really, really long way away. So that's if you're in real trouble. I mean, I've never had to use one. And a compass is just quite useful if you decide that you need to walk in one direction for a considerable amount of time. Good points. I also always have a spare battery pack for my mobile phone. They're quite heavy, but I think they're one of the things that you absolutely need. If, like me, you might be using your phone for a bit of navigation if you're a bit lost, or, again, if you're in trouble or you need to um, contact anybody and keep in contact with people until you're found, picked up, (laughs) rescued, then having a battery pack, which will last you I mean, the battery pack I've got would last days and days and days, even charging the phone. Yeah, I think that's really important because we don't just use phones for, you know, finding our way. We use them to take pictures, videos, all sorts, don't we? And the battery runs down. Yeah, if I'm going out for a long walk, I tend to switch off the apps other than the things that I really need. And I don't tend to follow routes on it. I just use some of the apps if I'm trying to double check something because that really does drain your battery quickly if you're navigating with it, as you know. And actually, that's probably quite a good time to mention the What Three Words app. It's only something I discovered within the last couple of years, but it's invaluable. And increasingly, people are using it. So for for the meeting point or for knowing where you are, if you're trying to tell somebody else where you are, it's really useful. And I've actually used it when out walking, when we needed to phone an ambulance, because we we saw a cyclist fall off her bike and the emergency services use it a lot now. So the entire globe is divided up into three metre squares. It's, I mean, it bends my mind how it works. And then each square is given a unique three word code. So, you know, all of the words are available. So for the walking festival, for some of the walks, which are slightly more complicated and where the nearest postcode takes you to not quite the right place, you can move it around on the map and then get the what three words for the precise kissing gate that you want people to to meet you at. I mean, like all of these things, it's reliant on the GPS technology in your phone being able, you know, if you're in a tunnel or something like that, then you'll probably lose it. But on the whole, it's it's a really, really good way of giving a really precise location. So, yeah, I swear by it now. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get that on my phone. And I think the last thing to say is if you're going out for the day and you're on your own, tell someone where you're going. Yep, absolutely. And if you're going out not on your own and in a group, be sensitive to the pace that everybody's going and look after the slowest in the group and go at their speed. Very important. All right, Lucy, thank you so much. And I'm really excited about the Walking Festival. We're going to be covering it before, during and after so everyone will get a chance to hear a flavour of what happens on the walks that you you haven't been able to sign up for I look forward to seeing everybody there and now it's time for our walk and this month we're delighted to welcome artist Richard White who's been spending his time in the last year exploring audio as a way of telling stories about our past, some of which is difficult to face. Here he is, starting off in Sydney Gardens. 
My name is Richard White. I'm an artist. I don't paint. I walk. It's a kind of walking, talking, making, performance, live, with whoever wants to walk with me. We walk and ask questions and listen and think and feel. Over the past few years, I've been doing a lot of work in Bath, exploring uncomfortable histories and what I call reluctant heritage. You know, the stuff they never told us in school. The kind of things you get the feeling that the authorities really don't want us to know. They're embarrassed about it or ashamed of it. But it's our history and it's the town in which we live and work and visit. During lockdown, I've got much more interested in using sound and video and I'm currently testing a whole load of different microphones and that's part of a creative technology residency that I'm doing. So now I'm in the studio, but in this piece, you're going to hear my first stab at doing a podcast. So it's best with your headphones on. And here we go. Sensing legacies of slave ownership. Sensing legacies of empire. Sensing the deep time. And how that resonates through to us and it connects in all kinds of ways. And so I started to think about sound and I've been doing a lot of work with sound recently. And in this piece, I'm going to try out a number of different microphones as I walk through Sydney Gardens. And this is part of a project that I've been working on for the past 18 months or so, um, all the way through lockdown, researching it, thinking about it, testing things out. We did a few walks in a sort of an, a kind of an archaeological tradition of doing a traverse drawing a line across the park and seeing where it might take us and it's taken us into the past it was a Roman burial ground perhaps it's taken us into the past thinking about where the buildings came from it's taken us to the deep past thinking about the stone that was used to build the buildings notably the Minerva Temple there, which they're repairing at the moment. That's moving what you can hear. Takes us to thinking about, well, who walked here? Who was here before? Romans walked through here, yes. Maybe ancient Britons walked through here. And maybe there are traces of other peoples in other lands, in the names, the names of the plants, the names of the trees. So let's walk on. I've walked to the top of Sydney Gardens now, just below the, the Minerva Temple. Uh, there's a cut down horse chestnut tree. And if you look at the old photographs, that horse chestnut tree kind of framed the, the famous Sydney Gardens bandstand. It's supposed to have the best acoustic in Bath, or maybe even wider. 
Um, but they didn't look after it and the council didn't look after it and the days when brass bands played there long gone but I wonder did that does the music resonate in the wood is the music somehow there in the wood I've recorded some old 78s off my grandma's wind-up record player and I've just played them back pushing the speaker down into the holes below the tree and in a kind of the beginning of the decay of the tree and there's I wonder how it rings but eventually I'll make something you know walk through and maybe some sounds will help us think about the ghosts of this place so what I'm going to do now is we'll go for a little walk and I'm going to try a different set of microphones and we'll walk down uh, through a little bit of Sydney Gardens and come out the other side uh, along by a canal. It's a hot day in the park and we're coming up now. So here we are, we're going to... Here is London Plain, dated 1777. A tree with a strange history, mixture of a tree that came from America and a tree maybe that came from Spain. Kind of strange hybrid. How did that tree, how did its grandparents get here? What trade connections does it have to tell us? I'm walking out now over the canal. I wonder if people know the irony of these padlocks. If you just stand here as I am, the iron is still cold on a hot day like today. This is iron from Colbrookdale. And it tells a story, if you want to hear it. And it's a story that connects us back to more atrocities of empire. The story of Colbrookdale, funded by this, partly funded anyway, at least by the slave wealth. The wealth generated by captured and enslaved people connects locally, connects into the Goldney family, half of the brass family of Bristol, and it connects right to. Saltford and the brass works at Saltford, which was owned by them. And Abraham Darby, who supposedly learnt his trade here and then headed off a bit further up north to Colbrooktown, where he set up his, what was to be a revolutionary factory, making iron. The very same iron that the locks and the chains and the padlocks that held the captured and enslaved people on their horrific journey from Africa to America. So I'm looking straight ahead down the canal and I can see a couple of boats coming forward. Beautiful ornate bridge. And ahead of me there's a big house. We'll walk on towards that house. Well, let's get down on the canal and walk, walk on to that big house. 
People discussing the risks of the modern age, the risk, risks of life in the time of the virus. On the canal path now, and walking towards the tunnel. Now back going past. So even the canal has a story to tell. One of the first directors of the Kent and Avon Canal is immortalised a bit further down along this, out at Dundas, Charles Dundas, a family of slave owners. The wealth generated by those captured and enslaved people held in chains by the iron of Colbrookdale and others is invested here. And when eventually the status of slavery was abolished in the 1830s and the slave owners were given compensation the loss of their labour, labourers. That money was again invested but in the railways and you can track it back through the Great Western Railway. But we've got a direct connection here. I'm sort of standing now by the entrance to the tunnel. There's an amazing array of graffiti and you can feel this stone, 1896, 1894. The house above us was the headquarters of the Kennet and Avon Canal in 1817. The building was funded by William Vane, the Duke of Cleveland, slave owner. His grandfather was the governor of Barbados, and his son-in-law, who was to later inherit the bits of the Portney estate and develop the Bathwick estate, was a guy called Major Forester. So Cleveland inherited the Portney Estates in 1810. Here comes bicycles. Oh, take your life in your hands walking down this canal. William Harry Vane, first Duke of Cleveland, Earl of Darlington, on the 25th of April, 1836, Her Majesty's Government awarded him £4,854, 16 shillings and ninepence, in compensation for the release of the 233 people he held as slaves on the Lowther Estate on Barbados those released from slavery received no compensation.
and they still haven't, not even an apology. So as well as inheriting a good chunk of the Portney estate, this guy was a third generation slave owner. Hung on in there right to the bitter end till the government compensated them for the release of those people that they held captured effectively for life, forever, chattel slaves. So we're back at the other side now. In the sunshine, runners coming past up the steps. Walking round past this fine house now. And as we walk out to the road, up this lane with the van going past, you can see over the top of the wall it says Velour Lane. Sham Castle Lane leading to Velour Lane. And if you walk up Velour Lane, you come to the now blocked off back entrance to the Bar Spa Hotel. Once the home of Augustus Andrews. So why would anybody call their house Velour? And that's a question I'm going to leave you with. Why Velour? What is Velour? Who is Velour? Where is Velour? And why would you want to memorialise it in the name of a house and a street or a road in Bath near Sydney Gardens? Come and join me for a walk and see what you think, see where we can take those questions. And if you're intrigued and want to find out more, Richard will tell all in his walk on the 19th of September. It's called Botany, Empire and Deep Time. It starts at 10.30 and lasts for two and a half hours. And if you bring a picnic, you could sign up for his afternoon walk as well. All details are on the website. That's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for listening. Don't forget Bathscape's Walking Festival starts on 11th of September. So do sign up for walks on the website bathscape.co.uk as spaces are limited. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. And hopefully we'll see you at the festival next month.